Um, our scripture lesson comes from first. It's written in First Peter chapter two, uh, beginning in the first verse. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Why is First Peter so important? Why is this letter so crucial to our life and witness and our walk to follow Jesus as he teaches us to and as he prepares the church then and now by God's word to understand what it means to follow Jesus? I was thinking about that. How can I communicate the significance and power uh, and emotion of this text this week and well it reminded me of a story maybe you've seen it on a Facebook reel or Instagram reel or maybe you've heard me tell this story with some of our youth but it reminded me of a valedictorian at his speech 
And this valedictorian uh, got up to share and shared about freshman year. Coming off the bus and dropping his bags as he got off with all of his earthly possessions from his locker and many of his books when he dropped the bag strewn all over the ground. And some around him would scoff and he expected that. But there was one young person who came to him and said, hey, can I help you pick up your things? And then to his surprise, as he got this help, then he got invited. Why don't you come over to my house? We'll hang out and have some fun. It became significant in this uh, later to be valedictorian's life because on that particular day, he felt all alone. In fact, he'd emptied out his locker. He was going to just end it all when he got home that day. That is until he was invited and cared for by this other young man who had become his best friend. You see, he had not been a people, but now had become part of this friend's. He'd been given personhood and named and loved or as we'd say today agency was honored that's the very truth of the text as we'll encounter it in first peter the difference between life and death once you were not a people but now you are a people This word of hope and promise and life, life now and life eternal. This is what we hear and are extended through God's word. We are, by his word, through the power of Jesus, God's people. This powerful word is so important for us today to hear in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. In a world where I read this week in a study, just one of three 18 to 35-year-olds, just one of three feel that there are people who deeply care about them and around them. Just one of three. In another study that came out this month, it said that of Christians, of those who call themselves Christians, only one in five hold the Bible as the absolute authority for their lives. One in five. And now, here just in the nation that we are called to live in, 64% as of 2020, according to a Pew Research, call themselves Christian. And that number, as it was just reported last week, is projected to be below in the decades to come, well below 50%. This is why we need 1 Peter. This is why we need this word from the Lord to call us as his people, to come to the milk, which is his word, to come and shape our lives around the cornerstone that gives us meaning. We need the inheritance, as we talked about it last week. That inheritance, by the way, that came to us in chapter 1, by the name of the Spirit and of the Father and of Jesus the Son, a Trinitarian formula that wouldn't 
just come later uh, when the councils happen, like the Council of Nicaea that you'll hear about in that creed class a few hundred years later. But now, under God's name, now this Trinitarian idea of God's people was happening early in the church's history. It was then and now, and it is still today that we come under his name. That's the inheritance that we receive. And then we discover quickly that we need each other to remind us of this this identity. We need each other when we doubt or when we fear or when we stumble to realign us based on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And we need to be sent even to bus stops like the one we just heard about to let folks know that Jesus has come to give the most important agency in personhood there ever could be. And so your church council voted to affirm just this last week words that they'd spent a couple of days working on based on the pillars of discipleship in God's word. This vision statement that will continue to unpack in the year to come and talk more about at that annual meeting that you heard about. This vision that says faith is a home where we walk a path of a Jesus-shaped life, living together with God and each other and the people we encounter. And so First Peter here is giving us a reason for that hope to live together with God, each other, and the people we encounter, showing us how to do that. Now hold on to these two words that we get from the text today. To do what we are called to keep and what we should abstain from. This comes from verses 10 and 11. And as we do that, by the by, you might get... You might get fired. You might not get invited to the Thanksgiving dinner. It might involve difficulty or challenge. So what then? How do we hold on to this thing to keep and this to abstain from then? Where we, where we begin and where this text begins is a continuation of that inheritance to know what to do in those times of difficulty. Edmund Clowney, a scholar, puts it like this, and this is critical. Hold close to this as well. The imperatives, that is what we're called to do as Christians, the imperatives of the Christian life always begin, as it does in this text, always begins with a therefore. It always begins with a therefore. In other words, it's connecting us to because of what has been done for us. We don't become the people of God, his chosen people, because of what we do. It's because of what Christ has done. It follows those imperatives to that important therefore. Or as another scholar put it maybe even more poignantly, the, what God demands, we can't do. What God demands, however, we can't ignore. And this conflict is only resolved before that, therefore, it's only resolved in Christ. 
Therefore, he calls us throughout this text. And again in verse 11, he calls you beloved. You are the beloved of God. You ever ask God, do you you really love me? You love me? And he calls you based on what, because of what he has done, beloved. And as the beloved, therefore, the imperatives follow. But don't miss what's before the therefore. As the beloved children of God, his chosen people, a holy nation, set apart for his marvelous light. Now, therefore, we are called to abstain and to keep certain things. And that's where we're going to dig in now. But before we do, a bit of a word of warning. And I'll, I'll give this word of warning by way of a story. The 20th, a 20th century parliamentarian was known to be very eloquent in the parliament. This politician was known to really persuasively articulate his argument. But he was also known and to be kind of casual, maybe, with the facts. And a member of parliament became frustrated with this and said, this man is like a drunk person who leans on a lamppost for support instead of being illumined by it. And so as we come into the uh, parts that, of, that are called the imperatives here in chapter 2 of First Peter, uh, this is the warning for us. That not to go to the word just to get the support, to have it say what we want it to say, but to be illumined by it instead. To be the beloved who are illumined by the word. And before you say, I hate it when Christians do that, Let's remember that you do it too. (laughs) And so do I. And so we need one another to help us see the true illumined word. And with that caveat and that important warning, let's come now to what God calls us to keep here in 1 Peter 2. We are called to keep this inheritance he's been writing about. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone as Peter quotes from Isaiah and Psalm 118 as the living stones. He becomes the cornerstone. Jesus is the the mark by which we measure everything else. God's word. And so we begin this chapter with the milk, which is the gospel. that makes us his living stones measured by him. So as we taste and see that the Lord is good, he says, we have such a close fellowship with God that he calls us part of his holy priesthood, as one scholar reminded us. This means that every Christian is the ultimate insider. Every Christian is the ultimate insider. And then it gets even more shocking because They're no longer, as we'll hear the Apostle Paul say, Jew nor Greek. 
Peter, a Jewish man, writes to Asia Minor, to these Greeks, these non-Jews mostly, and says, you are God's chosen people. This is like a bombshell. For that had only been reserved to God's people, the Jews, until now, but now through Christ, he says, you, you are God's chosen people. This is what we're called to keep, a new spiritual ethnicity, an idea that transcends. Oh, that we could still do this today among God's people and the world, the spiritual ethnicity that says all are one in Christ Jesus. But we don't, and so we need to be reminded of this truth and this promise. And we do that together in fellowship with God and with one another, we hear in this text, as his people. So fellowship isn't just like a nice benefit of being part of a church then, or an extra. It becomes essential life-giving where we speak the truth of God's word and love and experience it with one another. And so We are called not only to gather in places like this to worship, but in groups of study and discipleship groups and fellowship. This is essential and life-giving. And so we keep this inheritance. We keep this word. We anchor our lives around the cornerstone and we become a spiritual ethnicity. God's chosen people. And we keep As we keep reading our conduct, therefore, as a result of this calling, honorable. And what does it say? It says, keep your conduct honorable, interestingly enough, against evildoers, against those who treat you poorly. Our conduct is to be honorable so that On that day, they would have nothing against us except the word of Christ that we proclaim. Even against those who would seek evil. We are to be like Christ. And remember, we can't seem to do what he demands. But we can't ignore it either. And that can only be resolved through Christ. A Christian, as Luther put it, must act in such a way that can let everybody see and know what he thinks in his heart. This is well beyond what you post on your social media. Can you imagine if we lived into that more fully? A Christian must act in such a way that we can let everybody see and know what he thinks in his heart. This kind of transparency and authenticity is why we begin a worship service with a confession of sin. Because we, in our hearts, need to be forgiven. And then the last call to what we're going to talk about today of keeping is that we are sent to be a witness with this reason 
And we'll spend more time on that next week in chapter 3. This reason for our hope that comes because of this calling and choosing that God has done his work on the cross. But not only are we called to keep these gifts, we're also called to abstain from others. Abstain from the passions of this world. It means we don't lean on things like that lamppost to give us what they were never intended to give. Instead, it means we are illuminated by God's word that shows us our need for forgiveness and our need for repentance. It means we don't lean on things that won't do what we think they'll do. I know, you know what I mean when you've picked up that tub of ice cream to bring comfort. (laughs) Or maybe worse, that bottle. Or that person. And they cannot stand the weight of the difficulty that you face, but Christ can. It means we let the word illuminate our lives and lead us with the same kind of humble attitude that doesn't repay evil for good. It doesn't repay evil with evil. It repays it as Jesus does for us with good. Then when you turn the page and you get to verse 13 and following, it gets really challenging. (laughs) And as you read this text, I hope you will at home this week. And let me give you an important preview now. He tells us where we're to keep these gifts and abstain from these things. And why? For the sake of the gospel. He tells us to do that with governing authorities and with good or bad bosses and in our households. Now this is an important part to remember to let the word illuminate us and not lean on it for support of what we wanted to say because each of these texts at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 in 1 Peter are sometimes hard to understand because they've been abused. With governing authorities we see that abused for example in Nazi Germany when the church was co-opted to be part and of the evil that would come. Or good and bad bosses abused. Why, we heard it in our history just a short couple of centuries ago now. When those texts that, uh, not in reference to slave trade and human trafficking were used to somehow approve it. Abuse to allow that evil to take place. No, this text is about a vocation, a a servant and a master, a servant who's made an agreement with this master to work a certain number of years in trade for remuneration. It's not 
slavery as this text was abused to support. It's really more like someone working, agreeing to work 40 years to get a retirement. Sound more familiar? And so those good or bad bosses or households, this text was not called to build a hierarchy and allow for abusive spouses, abusive husbands against their wives to keep them there. No, it was about a witness to Christ. So keeping that important caveat in mind, the light of the illumination of God's word, let's listen to this text again. When it says, be subject for the Lord's sake, for every human institution, in verse 13, governing authorities, as you'll continue reading, it's not typically a verse that you see on a poster, right? Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, right? We don't see that held up very often. And before you think, well, yeah, but did he know about this governing authority? Remember, it was during the time of that cozy, warm, and always even keel Roman Empire in charge that he wrote this. This Roman Empire who had become experts at execution. Not an ideal situation. Now, there's an implication for the governing authorities in this text, but the point of this message, we've got to lean on what Peter intends here. It's, this is not a full treatise on how governing authorities should be or how uh, Christian subjects should be. It's just about us here in this moment. That's what he's talking about. And he's inviting us in our relationship with governing authorities to be a witness and a light for the gospel. Speaking the truth to be sure. To humble ourselves like Jesus did with Pilate. And that might require or may cause suffering and hardship on our part. But imagine, what if God used your witness to lead someone you'd consider a political enemy to Christ? Is the way in which you conduct yourselves with governing authorities and with human institutions a witness to Jesus. Then it gets even more personal. Understanding rightly now with servants and masters, it's about how we relate to good or bad bosses. It's not giving permission for bosses to be bad, but he says this, that our attitudes should be a witness to come for Christ's sake. In this pagan world, he's acknowledging that most likely folks are going to be serving non-Christian, ungodly, faithless masters, bosses. And he said, let your moral conduct not be the reason that they won't inherit the inheritance. And then... Finally, he says, if that's not personal enough, in your own 
household, or as what Luther called a term that he coined, the Hostafel in German, uh, household rules that we talk about in different places throughout the scriptures. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And we hear that and we think, what is going on? Illumined by Peter's word, by God's word here, not what we want to support. We find quickly that as women were the heralders of the resurrection, the first to herald that good news, they were many of whom the first to come to Christ as well in Asia Minor. And so many wives had become Christians when their husbands had not yet done so. And so their job, according to Peter here, is then to be a witness and a light to the gospel. This is not about furthering a hierarchy. It's about shining the light of Christ. It's about adorning adorning the gospel with a witness. Now remember, this is not a full treatise on both parties. It's all about Christians being a witness in a pagan world, a world not much unlike the 21st century, our own today. But I don't want to uh, miss this either. Verse 7, Peter couldn't help but remind husbands. (laughs) In chapter 3, likewise, likewise, honor as fellow heirs of God's grace. Your wives. Now this, uh, I'm not getting into and not ignoring here more difficult wording in there that we have to spend time unpacking. But the point is to stay centrally focused on this. The call is to be a light of Christ. And remember those imperatives follow the therefore. What God demands we can't do, but we can't ignore either. And it can only be resolved in Christ. And so today we get a glimpse of a first century evangelism plan. Christians embedded in their homes, in their workplaces, and in the public debate with keeping honorable conduct and abstaining from the passions of the world. Now imagine God, as it turns out, has that same plan for you and I today. It transformed the world in the first three centuries and it will transform the world today when we let the true light and illumination of that word shine on us. Not what we wanted to say. Jesus is changing the world, your world, my world, our world now. And it might involve hardship and suffering on our part, but it will be resolved in Christ. Remember, you are God's chosen people Living together a Jesus-shaped life with God, each other, and the people we encounter. And so hear this promise one more time. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen.